All right, good to see you guys. I do love uh, Family Worship Sunday, and of course the youth team did a great job this week as they always do, and of course, Bella did such a fantastic job reading the scriptures this morning. You hardly need this awesome message that apparently I'm going to be sharing with you. And the good news is that elementary kids, you guys have an even awesomer message that you're gonna have back in the children's ministry and for the youth, so for our middle and our high schoolers, normally, as you know, on the first Sunday of every month, that would be your day to sit in. But Pastor Chris has had mercy on you, and he's taking you out. So out you go if you want to with Pastor Chris, and he promised he would have the worship team back in time for our uh, closing of our service. So um, just a quick update. Um, as we mentioned last week, we have a couple of ladies from our fellowship, um, Jana and uh, Donna, who have been traveling this past week in the Ukraine. They left actually just after Easter Sunday, and they took, uh, what, 28 suitcases full of supplies uh, that they're trying to get to, you know, kind of their hometown there where the uh, Romanchenkos are from. Um, and so Vlad uh, gave me an update this morning. Apparently all has gone well, and the distribution has gone really well. They've been actually not just ministering there in their city of Priluki, but to some of the neighboring villages and people who are without uh, supplies. So I think they are set to get on a plane tomorrow, today, the next day. They're gonna be back with us this week at some point. They're, they're going to be back with us and hopefully back with us on Sunday so that they can share um, a little bit about what the Lord did through them. So I want to thank all of you who've been praying this week for them, and we're just excited to get to be a part of uh, what God is doing over there. So last uh, encouragement, I do want to encourage you to hang out and stay for our taco bar today. It's just a neat time to hang out and to fellowship with one another. Uh, you know, it's challenging to build connections with people just on Sunday mornings, but this is one of the ways that uh, that makes that a little bit easier. So we have a great text in front of us uh, today, but let's pray uh, just one more time real quickly and just ask the Lord uh, that he would bless our time in the word. So Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for all of the wonderful things that you're doing here in our midst, Lord, both here in the fellowship and through the fellowship, Lord, as you allow us to be part of what you're doing in other places, Lord, in this world. And of course, we pray for the safe return of Donna, Lord, and of Jana as they travel back here to be with us. And we're so thankful for the work that you've done through them. Lord, we're thankful as well just for the opportunity to be here, Lord. We're thankful for the privilege that we have to study your word freely and openly. And we're thankful, Lord, most of all for the way that your spirit teaches us. And we pray, Lord, that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord. We pray that you give us ears to hear what he would say to your church, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be this morning in Joshua chapter 14, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles that you can use. Um, if you want a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll have one of the, one of the folks bring you one. A uh, couple, yeah, so Rick's getting a couple Bibles if you need one. But we're just continuing our study right through the book of Joshua. And remember, last week we entered into what we said was a whole new section of this book, right? We came back from our sort of Easter break, 
And uh, as the Lord would have it, we're starting out in this brand new section. I think one more over here, uh, David. Over here on the left, there's one more. Okay, coming, perfect. Um, chapters 13 through 21, again, we're into kind of the distribution now of the land. The, the children of Israel, they came into the land, and now it's time that the, the Lord is going to divide the land and give that land to each tribe through his servant Joshua. And remember when we left off last week, before the land, before that promised land in Canaan proper was divided up, we were reminded kind of for the record of the way that that land on the east side of the Jordan was given to those two and a half tribes of Reuben and of Gad and then that half tribe of Manasseh. And now as we continue and kind of make our way into chapter 14, we're going to have this record of the division of the land on the west side of the Jordan. So actually in what was you know, officially the promised land, if you will. But we're going to see that even as they gather to begin this very important process, we're going to watch as there's, ex there's this extremely encouraging interruption to that process. And it comes from a man who stands, I think, amongst the most encouraging men in all of the scriptures. It's a man whose story is a story of wholehearted faithfulness. And so we're going to pick up uh, right now in verse 1 of chapter 14 as they gather together at Gilgal to divide the land of Canaan. It says in verse 1 that these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half tribe. So here we have this big gathering, right, of the heads of the remaining tribes, right, the nine and a half tribes who were about to receive their inheritance. And it says again that it would be given to them by the lot of the Lord, which we talked kind of at length about last time. It was that divinely given procedure by which the Lord made his will for his people known to his people. And we talked about the fact that it was really accepted by the people as the Lord supernaturally speaking into any given situation. The people were confident that however the lot fell out, that it fell out exactly the way the Lord caused it to fall out. They were confident that the Lord was present in this whole procedure. And remember we talked last week a little bit about Proverbs 16 where Solomon said that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And in this case... As the land was being divided, again, I think we mentioned it last time, that the Jewish historian Josephus confirms for us what's recorded in the Talmud, which is kind of the, the rabbi's commentary on the Jewish law. But Josephus records that in the midst of this meeting of these tribes, there were very likely two different pots or two different urns, and that in, in one of these pots, were the names of each of these nine and a half tribes, and the other pot were the divisions 
of the land. And so you would pull one parchment or one little slip of paper out of each pot, match them up, and that was the way that the Lord would divide the land. And so here we're told that as part of this, notice there were three different groups of people who were kind of presiding over the proceedings. There's Eleazar the priest as the spiritual head of the nation. There's Joshua, who was kind of the government head of the nation. And then you had the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. So it's kind of like we have these three different groups who are overseeing the nation, all of them here on hand to oversee this process. Again, they themselves are not dividing, they themselves are not distributing the land, but they're there to witness as the lot of the Lord makes these divisions supernaturally and very uniquely to each tribe. And so as we kind of picture this scene, right, we're talking about a substantial gathering of all of the significant people all gathered together there at Gilgal. Gilgal, we'll learn down there in verse 5, is where they are. Remember, this was the current capital of the Jewish people. It was that first place that they set up their camp after they had crossed over the Jordan. It's that place of memorial. Remember where those 12 stones had been set up. It was that place where they would return back after each battle to kind of rest and to reflect and to regroup and to be prepared for the next campaign. So here we are gathered together there in, in what is a very solemn place. These remaining nine and a half tribes are about to receive their inheritance. It says in verse 3, For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe on the other side of the Jordan. So this is just a reminder for the second time in the official record of exactly what we looked at in depth last week in chapter 13 as that land on the east side of the Jordan was given to those two and a half tribes. And then it continues in the second half of verse 3, and it says, But to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them, for the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in with their common lands, for their livestock and their property. So again, this is the official record, right? And as part of it, we have this reminder that the tribe of Levi had received no inheritance on that other eastern side. And then a little bit of a reckoning, if you will, of how it is that we still have 12 tribes of Israel who are receiving an inheritance. And the reason that we still have 12 tribes is that there were actually, what? 13 tribes. And there were 13 tribes because remember back in Genesis chapter 48 when Jacob took the two sons of Joseph, he took Ephraim and he took Manasseh, and effectively he kind of adopted them both as his own sons. And he made an individual tribe out of each one of them. He said, Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you. Here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And what this did, in Jacob's mind, was that it guaranteed that Joseph's children 
effectively would receive a double portion of land as an inheritance. So this was Jacob's way of really honoring his long lost son Joseph, not only for what his brothers had done to him, but then for what he had done in Egypt and the way he had saved the entire family. And it was God's way, knowing what he was going to do with the Levites in the way that he was gonna spread them out throughout the land. Remember, we talked about that last week so that their spiritual influence over the land would be spread and, and reach out to all the land. But this was God's way of ensuring that that land would be divided as it was always intended to be still amongst 12 tribes. So we read in verse five that as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did and they divided the land. So everything was going according to plan, right? The land on the east had been divided, it had been distributed. This land on the west was now sort of set to be given out to the tribes and the leaders were assembled and the lots were about to be cast and the land was going to be divided when all of a sudden, Next, we have this sort of an interruption, if you will, to this process. It says in verse 6 that then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Now, just to pause quickly, so the tribe of Judah would have been the very first tribe who would have received their inheritance. They were the largest tribe. They were the most powerful tribe. They had over 76,000 warriors that came just from the tribe of Judah. Joshua was of the tribe of Judah. Numbers 10 tells us that it was the men of Judah who led the armies of Israel. So they would have been the first to receive their inheritance, but even before the lot could be cast from the Lord to the tribe of Judah, Joshua's old friend Caleb, who himself was also from the tribe of Judah, he steps up, right? He steps forward to remind Joshua of a promise which the Lord had made to him 45 years earlier. And so think about this scene. We've got to love this guy, Caleb, because here he walks into the scene and he says, wait a minute. He says, I am all for you dividing the land. This is going to be great. You know, let's divide the land just like the Lord said we should. But there's one thing we need to take care of. So Caleb wants to finish up with a little bit of unfinished business. And it was unfinished business that Joshua certainly would have remembered because Caleb and Joshua had a very long history with one another. And so now Caleb continues and he was reminding them, of course, he's telling us a little bit about that history in these next few verses. This is Caleb's faith-filled history. He says in verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And so Moses swore on that day 
Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So Caleb says, hey, before you start dividing up the land to anybody else, and he reminds Joshua that Moses had promised him his own piece of land 45 years earlier. He says, let's go ahead and we'll settle that first. Then we can start dividing up the land amongst the 12 tribes. And of course, this takes us back to that very familiar account in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Remember where the 12 spies who'd been sent out by Moses to spy out the land the first time they got to the borders of the promised land 45 years earlier. You remember the story. Remember 12 spies went out and two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb. Two spies came back with a faith-filled report and the other 10 spies who came back, they came back with a fear-filled report. In Numbers chapter 13, it had said that they, uh, then they told him and said, this is the fear-filled spies. They said, we went to the land where you sent us and it truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And we know that this fear is so contagious the whole congregation of Israel turned and they were now afraid to go into the land they wanted to stone Caleb they wanted to stone Joshua they wanted to get rid of Moses and at that point they wanted just to go back to Egypt apparently they forgot about the beatings that they received right fear is such a powerful force it says in numbers 14 but Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes, right? They were in mourning. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. So understand, here are just these two guys. They stand up before it says, all of the congregation of Israel, and they make their case. Then they say, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fill the, fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Right? We're going to eat them. They're not going to eat us. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Right? And you know that it was in response to this that the Lord swore to Moses. He says, look, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But 
My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. The Lord says, look, everybody else in this faithless generation is going to die off during this wilderness wandering. But this man, Caleb, right, and of course we know Joshua as well, he will live to enter the promised land. And not only that, he says, I'm going to give to Caleb the very land that he saw as a special inheritance, not a tribal inheritance, but a special inheritance just for Caleb. And why? Well, the Lord said it there in Numbers 14. Caleb repeats it here in verse 8, just the way that Moses had repeated it. It was all because Caleb had wholly followed the Lord my God. And we are told that about this guy Caleb six different times in the record of the scriptures. We're told it back in Numbers and we're told it again in Deuteronomy. We're told it three different times just here in this passage. And the, every time it says the very same thing, that he wholly followed the Lord. And notice, that's holy with a W-H. It's not holy just with an H because it doesn't mean to be perfect in the way that we follow, but it means to be full in how we follow. It means that we follow with our whole selves. It means that we follow with our whole heart. It means to be fully given over or to, to fully consecrate or to dedicate oneself. And I love this, but literally what the original language says is that he was filled with pursuing the Lord. That his heart was so set on simply following God that it didn't have any room in there for any kind of a competing choice. And that's what set the course of Caleb's life. He wholly followed means that he made steady, forward progress over the course of that following. And we're about to find out that Caleb is 85 years old at this point. And what a statement to be able to make of yourself at that point. Again, it doesn't mean that Caleb was perfect. It just means that his progress was steadily moving in the right direction. The best way I think to think about this is to think about Abraham and Lot. Because Abraham and Lot both believed in the same God. They both left Ur of the Chaldees. They both left family behind. They both made a very difficult journey. And yet, when push came to shove, Abraham's decisions, by and large, were always based on the Lord's will for his life. Lot was motivated by his own sort of faithfulness, but when push came to shove, his last decisions were always motivated by the flesh. They were always motivated by what he wanted. It wasn't that Lot was an unbeliever, but he was a compromising believer. He was one of those who started well, just like Solomon started well and Samson started well. So many others in the scriptures we can see who started well, but they start well, but they finish poorly. And that's the difference between a Lot and a Caleb. Caleb finished well. And so what was his secret? 
Well, again, the Lord just told us, because notice he had said in Numbers 14 that it was because Caleb had a different spirit in him. And this is one of the single great characteristics of Caleb. And it's also, it's a defining characteristic of anybody who wants to be great for God and who wants to follow wholly after God. Because Caleb had a spirit that was different than everyone else who was around him. Right? And he was willing to stand alone for God and for what he knew was right. And Caleb did it not just in the middle of a pagan world or of a wicked, perverse generation. That's expected, right? But Caleb, he stood for what was right amongst and in the midst of God's people. And he ran the risk of being stoned by God's people as a result of doing the right thing. And you think about the godly character of Caleb that he was willing to make that kind of a stand within the family of faith, right? It was just him and Joshua and Moses against all of the rest of Israel. And I know some of you because I've talked to you and I would venture to guess that every single one of us sooner or later in our Christian lives, we are going to be put in a place and it will test our hearts whether it's like Caleb, right? whether our heart is to, to wholly follow the Lord, if it's really filled with pursuing the Lord, or whether our hearts are going to cave in on some issue. Some issue that we know is wrong, and yet we look around at all the other Christians who are maybe doing it this way, and we figure, well, I'll just do it too. It can be a very lonely place to be a Caleb. It can be a lonely and a painful experience, and those of you who've been through it know it's a very difficult place to be. Where you make some kind of a stand on some specific biblical principle when all of the other Christians around you are just caving in left and right. They say, what do you mean you don't do this? Or what do you mean you don't do that thing? Everybody does these things now. Or the church is saying, you know what, we just need to kind of change our definitions of things. We need to adjust our faith for the times. We need to be more tolerant or we need to be more inclusive. And you're sticking to God's word and all of a sudden now you're the fanatic. All of a sudden now you're the crazy person because none of the other Christians are walking that strictly. And so now there's all this pressure on you. And yet yours is the life that pleases God. Right? You're the one who's in that right place. You're the one who's in that place where there's peace. And so what the witness of Caleb does for us here in our text is it forces us to look within us, right, and to really think through our commitment to the Lord. When people look at us, do they say, yes, that is is a man or woman who wholly follows the Lord. That is how we're to walk with God steadily and consistently. Is that what they see when they look at us? Whenever we're presented with these kinds of different situations, again, where all of God's people might be going one way, and yet we know that God's word and we know that God's spirit are very clear to us that we need to be going in another way. 
And to Caleb's credit, that kind of a situation, he's presented with it and he says, no way. I'm going to make a stand here for God and I'm going to stand on what God said to us. I'm going to stand on these promises that he's given to us. And Caleb had stood firm on that promise. He had held firm to that promise. He says in verse 10, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. Ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. Caleb had held on to this promise. He'd been waiting patiently for this promise for a full 45 years. Now that is a faith-filled history. Amen? And I know those are two concepts that we don't like to see put together as they relate to our Christian lives. The concept of wait and the concept of 45 years. We don't like to wait 15 minutes, right? We don't like to wait 15 minutes in a line or in traffic. We don't even like to wait 15 minutes for DoorDash as we're sitting on the comfort of our own couch. But Caleb waited 45 years, and they were not 45 easy years. 38 of those years were the years of wandering in the wilderness, and the last seven of those 45 years were the years of conquest that we just looked at in chapters 1 through 12. Years of battle after battle and campaign after campaign and king after king and army after army, and yet Caleb persevered because of God's promise. He persevered because of one simple thing that he himself says here in verse 10. He says, because the Lord said. Five different times, in five different ways. Look at the text. Caleb speaks in this chapter. He says effectively the very same thing. He says, because the Lord said so. Verse 6, the word which the Lord said to Moses. Verse 10, the Lord has kept me alive as he said. Again in verse 10, the Lord spoke this word to Moses. Verse 12, the Lord spoke in that day. Again in verse 12, he says, the Lord said. Right? God said it, and for Caleb, it was now as good as done. Because Caleb was a man who had such a deep reverence and a great respect for the word of God. Even in, right, and especially in, those dark, difficult days. And it is so sad, there are so many Christians who, they, you know, they see the word of God, and they see some promise in the word of God as it relates to their lives. But then right next to that, they see this enemy, right? They see that stronghold that has to fall in order for that promise to come true for them. But they don't look at the word of God with eyes of faith, right? They don't look at the giants. They don't look at the fortified cities in light of the word of God. But instead, they do the opposite. They judge the word of God in the shadow of the strength of all of those things that they see standing in the way. Those things that have a hold on their life that are preventing them from inheriting those promises. And so they never approach those things with faith or with confidence in the word or in the power of God. And instead, 
they just start to make excuses for why all of these things are continuing in their lives. But Caleb absolutely didn't do that. Caleb said, you know what? God said it. God said he would give us this power. God said he would give us this land. God said he would give us this portion. He gives us this Christ-likeness. God said he gives these promises. And I know he's going to do that in my life, even if it takes 45 years. And I think that it was receiving this promise that had kept Caleb Caleb alive, even as the Lord kept Caleb alive to receive the promise. Caleb knew he wanted to be amongst those people of God who are going to inherit all of these things that God had promised. And listen, you and I have the same promise of our inheritance, but can I tell you something? It is not 45 years away. Because we can start to experience it even here and now. We can start to experience all of that even here and now on this side of heaven. Now, heaven's going to be much better, of course. Amen? Right? Heaven is our ultimate inheritance. But the whole point of the picture of this whole book that we're studying is all about entering in and settling down in the promised land is to start to possess all of these exceedingly precious promises, right? That spiritual inheritance, that taste of heaven that we can have even here and even now. 45 years is a long time to wait for the fulfillment of a pledge. It's a long time for faith to live on a promise. And yet Caleb waited. He waited through all of those weary years of wandering and the demanding years of the conquest because he had a different spirit. He had this strong faith, and that's what sustained him through those difficult times. And just think for a minute. Think about what this godly believing man had to endure during those years in the wilderness. Every single day, he had to watch people he knew and loved die in the wilderness and miss out on their inheritance. He had to listen every day to the constant murmuring and the constant complaining. He had to put up year after year with the unbelief of his fellow Israelites. We know that Caleb loved Moses. He supported Moses. And yet he had to listen to the Jews as they criticized and opposed and repeatedly tried to get rid of Moses. So the question for us is, how was Caleb able to maintain his godly perspective when he was so surrounded constantly by so much carnality and so much unbelief. And he was able to do it because his heart was already in Canaan. See, God had promised him this wonderful inheritance and though his body was still wandering in the wilderness or in a battle against an enemy, his heart and his mind were already at peace in Canaan. And this, in this, I think that Caleb is such a wonderful Old Testament picture of this New Testament reality. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul encourages us all. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is 
sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the best Christian living comes from minds that are fully fixed on heaven. We realize that our lives are now wrapped up completely in Jesus. And since Jesus is there enthroned in heaven, that's exactly where our thoughts and our minds and our hearts should be as well. So we can love heavenly things. We can study heavenly things. We can let our hearts be engrossed and enamored by those heavenly things because in reality, those heavenly things are really more of a reality than are the earthly things that we deal with every day. Heaven is way more real than anything that's happening here to us on this planet. And Caleb was able to endure all of these trials in the wilderness because he knew that he had this inheritance. He knew that God wouldn't fail him because God had said so. And the thing I love about Caleb is that God's word was more real to him than the circumstances that were all around him. Right? And those 45 years, you see next, they didn't wear him out at all because he was set on another world. And so he says in verse 11, he says, As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. He says, look, you go ahead and put 85 candles on my cake, but I'm only going to recognize 40 of them. Right? He says, because I've got the same strength and I've got the same faith that I had 45 years ago when I first set foot on this land. He says, now therefore, verse 12, give me this mountain, right? or, or literally give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord had said. Now, don't miss what just happened here, right? If your mind is wandering, come back because I promise you don't want to miss this. What Caleb is doing here at the age of 85, so he is the oldest man, second to Joshua, Caleb is literally the oldest man in all of Israel. And when he could have come in and asked for some kind of a quiet place just to live out, which would no doubt be his last days, maybe he'd do a little bit of fly fishing on a river. Maybe he'd plant some tasty vegetables. Maybe he'd raise flowers. But what does Caleb do? Instead, he asks that he be given the very same section of land right, that mountainy kind of hill country that he had visited 45 years earlier, which is the very same section of land with the very same giants still in the land who had struck fear into the hearts of all of those faithless spies and then of all of Israel after that. And Joshua says here, I want that mountain and I want those stinking giants. 
right? Then he says, hey, buddy, you remember 45 years ago. You remember everybody was afraid of the Anakim and all this other stuff with their tall people and their tall walled cities. But the Lord would have driven them out then. And I know that he will certainly still drive them out now. Just give me a crack at those guys. I want to do the same thing to them today that I know that the Lord would have done to them 45 years ago. And at 85 years old, Caleb still wanted to lead the fight, and not just against any foe, against the Anakim. Right? So in addition to this faith-filled history, this is Caleb's faith-filled destiny. And it's such a beautiful picture, I think, of how the Lord would have us to be in our spiritual lives. Because, of course, as we advance in years, we may be growing older physically, but we should also be growing stronger spiritually in our faith in Jesus. Because we don't ever retire from serving the Lord or from loving the Lord or from growing in the Lord. God may move us to a different ministry, but we never retire from that ministry because there are always more giants to be fought. There are always more enemies to be driven out. And there is something that is so inspiring when we can look around and we can see someone who has walked with the Lord and who has wholly followed after the Lord for decade upon decade upon decade. And especially when we see someone who's still engaged in the fight. Right? Every single young Christian has the right to see an 85-year-old with a sword still in their hand. Right? They have that right to see that within the body of Christ. And I can tell you, we've got some of them right here in our church family. I won't mention their names, but they sit in the second row. <laughs> and they serve constantly in the children's ministry. And I think weekly or monthly in the jails. Right? And I know that there are many others as well. To see somebody who's still just firmly clenching on to that sword of the spirit. Who's clenching on to the word of God and they're living by faith and they're walking in faith on the basis of the word of God. And they're using those things to continue to move themselves forward in whatever the calling is that God has placed on their lives. And we all need to be encouraged and to be inspired by these Caleb's in our lives. These Caleb's who are still there and still willing to take on all of the Anakim that are still out there in the land. Verse 13 says, And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron, or gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Now, Hebron, as you know, it was a city about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It was in kind of the Judean valley. And Hebron and its surrounding, the surrounding areas of Hebron that Caleb was given had quite a rich history with God's people. And I think you're going to think this is cool. I hope you're going to, whether you think it's cool or not, you're going to have to sit through it. In Genesis 13, right? Genesis 13, just after Abram had parted with Lot and had pitched his tent, remember, between Bethel and Ai, it was there where he'd pitched his tent. The Lord said this to him. Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are 
northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. And then it was in that place there at Hebron when Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent in Genesis 14, that's when those three strangers came to him, the Lord and the two other angels, and told him what they were about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was in this place at Hebron in Genesis 15 when the Lord God appeared to Abram and told him, remember, he says, look up at the stars of the heaven because your descendants are going to outnumber them. And that's when he changed Abram's name to Abraham and that's where he made the covenant with him, right? The covenant with him and gave the covenant sign to him of circumcision. It was there in this very same place of Hebron in Genesis 23 in a cave at nearby Machpelah where Abraham buried his wife Sarah and then where he himself was buried in Genesis 25 and then where Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah would also be buried. Now, currently, that area is under Palestinian control, but Machpelah, the cave in Hebron, is considered by the Jews to be the second holiest site in all of Israel. The Muslims call it the sanctuary of Abraham. The Jews call it the cave of the patriarchs. And what Caleb says is, you give me that. You give me Hebron because that is my heritage. He says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are all buried there. And I think the sense here is that Caleb says to Joshua, listen, if those three men had enough faith to live and to die as strangers here in this land, to live and die on the basis of this promise from God that we would one day finally possess it, then I want you to give me Hebron where they are because if they could live their entire lives looking ahead with that kind of faith, then I want to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise. It's such a, it's an incredible history. It's this wonderful heritage as now Caleb joins these other men who had wholly followed the Lord. Right? This is Caleb's faith-filled legacy. It says in verse 14 that Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now, I know that you noticed because you are an especially smart and a well-taught group of Bible students. But you already noticed that this is now the second time in our text today that Caleb is noted as being the son of Jebunah, the Canaanite. First up there in verse 6, and now here again in verse 14. And these are not, I believe, they're not simply so that we can identify him. 
but they are there so that we can be inspired by him and I think even to identify with him. Because in Genesis 15, we learn that the Kenizzites were an ancient pagan people, right? A pagan tribe who was living there in the land of Canaan around the time that Abraham arrived there. And some people speculate that they may probably have gone also down to Egypt with Jacob and his family to escape that very same famine in Canaan. And then somewhere along the line, Caleb's father's house, right, the family of Jephunneh, had joined itself to the tribe of Judah and had then been incorporated into the tribe of Judah. Which is to say that Caleb is a man from a Gentile heritage who had been grafted into the Jewish family of faith. And into the tribe of Judah, no less, the very tribe from which Jesus would ultimately come. Right? Caleb was very likely born in Egypt to Gentile parents who are now living there amongst these Jewish slaves. Caleb spent the first 38 years of his life as a slave, looking ahead in faith, just as the Jews looked ahead in faith. The name Caleb is a compound word that's made up of two different words, kal, which means all, and lev, which means heart, to signify that Caleb was all heart, or that he was wholehearted for Jehovah. And of course, that speaks volumes, doesn't it, to the faith of his father, Jephunneh, right? This grafted-in Gentile. Because here's this boy, Caleb, who has absolutely no natural advantage, born as a slave to a Gentile family, grafted into the house of Judah, and yet this man, is the man whom the scriptures declare wholly followed the Lord. And this is the man who becomes one of the most faithful servants of the Lord, not only in his time, but in all time. And we're going to see, spoiler alert, we're going to see that Caleb will be, of all the tribes in all of their allotted territories, Caleb is going to be the only one who drives all of the Canaanites out of his territory. All of the giant Canaanites out of his territory. We're going to see that his nephew, Othniel, was going to help him in some of his coming conquests. Later, Othniel would become the very first judge over all of Israel. Right, Just continuing in that legacy of faith and of leadership. We're going to meet his daughter, Aksah. Right In the very next chapter, who's given to Mary Othniel, she herself, we're going to see, demonstrates this great faith in the promises of God. So all of this to simply say that Caleb is a wonderful picture for us of each of us. Right, Grafted into the family of God, but with this equal opportunity to be great in the kingdom of God. Any of us can become a great witness for God, whatever our background, as we are simply wholehearted for the Lord and we wholly follow after him. That was the secret of Caleb's life. 
It's that phrase, right, that keeps being repeated over and over again. He wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. His heart was so filled with pursuing that there was room for nothing else. And what a thought I think that is for each of us, just plucked right here from the pages of the Old Testament. But do you know what the New Testament equivalent of this is? It comes right from the mouth of Jesus. Remember in Matthew 22, someone had come to Jesus and had asked, it says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the demands of the New Testament are no less than the demands of the Old Testament, right? Jesus demands of our life and that wholehearted commitment to him and to his call upon our lives. It's no less than that same demand that was made on the children of Israel in the Old Testament, but the privilege that we have is far greater. The greater privilege that we have is that the land that we conquer is a greater land. That the things that we're fighting for are greater things. As we're fighting for Christ to be seen in our lives, as we're fighting for people to come to know the Lord, we're fighting for people to have their eternity changed. These are the blessings, these are the greater blessings that are ours. So much greater than any Hebron could ever be any section of land as we each are loving the Lord with all of our hearts and our minds and our souls and all of our strength and the name verse 15 of Hebron formerly with Kirjath Arba Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim and then the land had rest from war so this city that was once known as the home of the giants now Hebron would be known instead as the heritage of the faithful, right? And as the inheritance of this incredibly faithful man called Caleb. Now, as we close, you might be wondering to yourself, at least I hope one of you is wondering to yourself, because I was wondering to myself, why in the world is this account, this wonderful account concerning Caleb, why is it just kind of plopped right here right as an interruption, right in the middle of all of these allotments of land. Why didn't we talk about Caleb back in the middle of one of these big battles, right as we're headed into Jericho or, or during one of these campaigns of Canaan? And yet I think that the reason that the Spirit of God puts it here, right, even for the children of Israel, I think, but especially for us, he puts it right here because he's showing them and he's showing us the kind of commitment that Caleb had to the Lord, right, of wholly following after him. And he's communicating to the tribes of Israel that this is the kind of commitment that's going to be required of you in order to conquer these individual sections of land that I'm about to give you. And very sadly, as we said, we're going to see that many of the tribes did not possess this same kind of spirit. 
they didn't have the same kind of commitment that Caleb had. So they're going to take the land, but they're only going to actually conquer it so far. They're only going to be partly obedient to the Lord, and they will never have all that the Lord wants them to have. And so right here in the midst of this scene, God knows the way that they're going to be tempted, right, to just partially conquer the land and to become friends with their enemies and then to allow for the sin of their enemies to come in and pollute them as a people and prevent them from loving the Lord God with all of their hearts and their minds and their soul and their strength. And what God is doing right here is he's pointing them back and he is saying to them, you are without excuse because Caleb did it. And Caleb did it with the very same resources that you had to do it. And he did it as a foreigner that was grafted into your rich heritage. And so I think God presents to them and he presents to us this mighty man by the name of Caleb, right? All heart, wholehearted Caleb to wholeheartedly testify to the fact that a life of victory does indeed exist, but it requires that it's coupled with this wholehearted commitment to the commands of God, this wholehearted faith in the word of God. Now, as we finish up today, we're going to finish by celebrating communion. And as we celebrate communion today, I think that we can do it, right, in part contemplating Caleb, right, and this commitment, this wholehearted commitment that he had to the Lord, because the witness of Caleb should really quicken our own spirits, right? It should quicken our own hearts about our commitment to the Lord Jesus and to the, his sacrifice on the cross, amen? To his sacrifice on the cross, which purchased for us the forgiveness of our sins, and it was that sacrifice on the cross as well that provides us with this rich inheritance, right? A far greater inheritance, right? Greater than any Hebron that you could have, right? And that's an inheritance because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because of what we celebrate here as we celebrate communion. It's an inheritance that we can and that the Lord wants us to start enjoying even right now here this morning.